0: Good evening. It's good to see everybody tonight. We are glad that you're here and we hope that you'll enjoy the study of the evening and I hope that you've enjoyed our study of the book of Matthew. It's, it's been an incredible journey to go through the life of Christ starting from uh, his birth and now today we're getting to his rebirth, if you will, the resurrection of Jesus Christ and we've led up to this point where Jesus has been crucified, and we're gonna go back through some of the details of that because of our study tonight. And uh we ended last week with this conspiracy uh, where these chief priests made this decision to be proactive because they had heard that Jesus had claimed he would rise from the dead. Interestingly enough, his apostles did not understand his claim he would rise from the dead, but the chief priests did, and so they took some measures to ensure that Jesus would not be uh, claimed as being risen from the dead. Now whether or not they believed he would actually rise from the dead is one thing, but another is, is that they felt like we want to take every precaution. Well, that didn't work. And, and of course it wasn't going to work because what they didn't understand is they weren't dealing with a man, they weren't dealing with a false prophet, they were actually dealing with the Son of God. And so we're just going to pick right up in our text. We're going to read verses 1 through 10 to start our study. And as we're reading through these, I'm going to pause and we're going to comment on these 10 verses because we're not going to come back to them and analyze them later. So we're going to do that at the beginning of the study. So Matthew chapter 28 and verse 1, it says Now after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. So let's just start by looking at these verses. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, that's Jesus' mother, come to the tomb. Uh, they know where the tomb is. It's a very prom- a tomb of a very prominent man, Joseph of Arimathea, uh, and they were actually back watching when they put Jesus in the tomb. You might remember that from, our last, from, from last week. They were opposite of the tomb watching them where they were putting him. They wanted to know where he was. So the, they're coming to the tomb, and they're coming to anoint Jesus with spices, and they, 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 they show up, and it's a little different than they expected. And so an earthquake happens, and I want you to notice this word for, and this word for in the Greek means because. There was an earthquake because an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. That got everybody's attention. Not just the ladies, but notice in verse 3, his countenance was like lightning, his clothing was as white as snow, and the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. So keep in mind that there's this watch of soldiers around the tomb of Jesus, guarding the tomb of Jesus because they've been paid to do this, and all of a sudden the earth quakes, and you see this stone roll back, and there's this angel that it says... His countenance was like lightning. I don't know. I don't know how to describe that. Uh, I'm guessing it was just really bright, you know, like the lightning that flashes really brightly. Whatever the case, whatever he looked like, that coupled with the earthquake and the stone rolling back, these men became like dead men. Now, whether or not that just means that they stood still like dead men or they fainted, uh, I'm not certain. Most scholars believe that they actually swooned, that they fainted, for fear which would make sense it would allow Mary and uh, and them to actually come to the tomb uh, but that's that is somewhat su- um, speculation but either way i want you to remember this cuz we're going to come back to this thought later okay toward the end of the study verse 5 but the angel answered and said to the women do not be afraid for i know that you seek Jesus who was crucified he is not here for he is risen as he said come see the place where the lord lay and go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead and indeed he is going before you into Galilee there you will see him behold i have told you the angel doesn't just tell them that jesus is risen and expect them to believe it he says come and see come look so they go to the tomb they look in the tomb and this isn't recorded in matthew but in other gospels they they find jesus clothing uh, really, it was linen that he was wound up in, laying there where they had put him, uh, along with a napkin, it says. It's, it's, it's what they would put over their head, and it was folded up nice and neat right at the end of, of these uh, linens that he was wrapped up in. So they see this, and this angel reminds them that he is going before you into Galilee. Now, Jesus had told his apostles this. He had told them, after I'm risen from the dead, I will go to Galilee, and there you will see me. Now, they had no clue what he meant, and and they obviously didn't really understand, but now he's reminding them of what Jesus had already told them. So they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy. That's interesting. You talk about mixed emotions. They go away from the tomb with fear and with great joy. You know, Of course it'd be fearful. And we're going to talk about why they would have been fearful uh, regarding Jesus' resurrection and, and why this would surprise them, even though they had already seen, Mary had already seen her brother Lazarus raised from the dead. This wasn't the first person that had been resurrected. But I believe there was a reason why Jesus' resurrection was harder for them to believe initially than it was uh, for Lazarus to be resurrected and for some others like the, uh, the widow's son at Nain and Jairus' daughter and, and all the other people that were resurrected by Jesus. And we'll get to that in just a little bit as well. Okay, so reading verse 8 again and also 9 and 10. So they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to bring his disciples word. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them saying, rejoice. So they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee and there they will see me. So he tells them the same thing that the angel does, but... When he sees them, they're full of great fear and joy. And Jesus says, Rejoice! Do we get that? Do we understand what Mary and Mary had been feeling for several days? As they watched the Lord being taken taken captive, as they watch him being put on trial, as they watch the beatings, they watch the crucifixion. They're they're witnessing all of this. And in the pit of despair and hopelessness, they are about as sad as a person can be. And the first word Jesus says to them about the resurrection is rejoice. I want you to know something tonight. We focus on the death of Christ, but Jesus is not dead. We don't serve a dead Savior. Jesus is alive. Rejoice. Be glad. Because the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the single most important moment. You say, what about the cross? I'm not negating the cross. The cross is our atonement. The cross is our redemption. But without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, friends, our faith, our hope, it is all empty. Notice what Paul says. In 1 Corinthians 15, 13, Paul says, but if there is no resurrection of the dead. Now, the reason he says this is because some people at Corinth were questioning whether or not there actually was such a thing as a resurrection from the dead. And here's his logic. If there's no resurrection, then Christ is not risen. These are Christians he's writing to, and he's he's showing them how foolish it is for them to believe that there's no resurrection. If there's no resurrection, Jesus is dead. He's not not alive. And if Christ is not risen, our preaching is empty. Your faith is also empty. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then what are we doing? And I want to tell you the same thing. If Jesus is not alive from the dead, what are you doing? You should be doing something else. If anything would shake my faith that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, it would be the resurrection. Because if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then Jesus is not the Son of God. And what we do every single day and what we do every Sunday and every Wednesday and every time we sing and every time we talk about the Word and every time we try to live a moral life, it is foolishness if Jesus is not risen from the dead. He goes on to say, if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. You say, yeah, but if Jesus didn't rise, he still died for our sins. Yeah, but he just died, and he was just a man if he didn't rise from the dead. Everything hinges upon the fact that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. And I will tell you something. There are things that are faith, and there are things that are fact. Now, I'm not saying that things we believe aren't fact. I'm saying in the realm of examining evidence and looking at evidence, there are things we believe, but there's things that are facts. And I'm going to tell you fact number one. The tomb was empty. That's a fact. It's not just a belief. In fact, historians know and believe the tomb was empty. That's why there's so many different stories about what actually happened to Jesus after he went into the grave. You know why? Because the tomb was empty. And unless somebody is, is is crazy enough or delusional enough to say, well, Jesus never existed Everybody, even unbelievers, understand by examining historical evidence, the tomb was empty. And we believe that for a reason. Because the body was never produced. It was never produced. Now in 2,000 years, in 2,000 years, the best theories that man have been able to come up with to try to object... the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our number one, the swoon theory, which we'll talk about mostly tonight, the impersonation or hallucination theory. So uh, I'll explain this one in a moment because it's going to be our first point, but I want to talk about this one for just a moment so that we understand what the claim is. The claim of this theory is, is that Jesus never did rise from the dead. There was just somebody that looked like Jesus that after the third day showed up and fooled everybody. Just pretended to be Jesus. And we'll talk about that. Uh, And then this hallucination theory is is that that some people just thought that they saw Jesus. And we'll talk about that too. Uh, Mainly this is based on the road to Emmaus uh, story that we have for us. The other theory, which is the disciples stole the body. Now this is actually the oldest theory because it started before they actually even buried Jesus. This was the idea of the chief priest to say the disciples stole the body away. And you say, well, they were saying we don't want them to steal the body away. Well, that's true, but then they decided that was their best story once the tomb was empty. That uh, that makes no sense to me either. Uh, But that's the oldest theory. And then there's this other theory that the enemy stole the body. And I'm going to tell you something. In 2,000 years, these are the best four theories to object to the resurrection. Nobody's been able to come up with a better theory. And we're going to debunk all these theories tonight. And the first one is this swoon theory, and the the word swoon means that Jesus basically went into a short coma. He fainted from exhaustion, that he actually didn't die on the cross. They just thought he was dead, and so they went and they put him in the tomb, and basically he's there for a day and a half, two days, and then he wakes up out of his swoon, And he comes out of the tomb somehow, getting the rock out of the way and sneaking past the Roman soldiers and shows up to his disciples. Now, when you just hear the theory itself, I'm sure every one of us already are thinking, that's crazy. You're right, that's crazy. But this is the most believed theory. This is the most accepted theory as far as objections to the resurrection. So let's talk about this swoon theory for a moment. Uh, And as as I said... Uh, we're going to examine some of the evidence we've already examined. And I'm not, I not. want to go into this in great detail because I talked about this quite a bit. But the first thing I want to point out is that Jesus was scourged. And the reason we're doing this is because the swoon theory is dependent upon the theory that Jesus never died. So let's talk about how Jesus died. You know, if you think about it, if Jesus would have died in some uh, nonviolent manner... If he would have just had a heart attack or something like that, this would be a somewhat plausible theory. But thinking about the manner that Jesus died in, the brutality that he that he uh, actually experienced, will give some credence to the fact that Jesus actually. Was dead. So first of all, we talked about scourging a couple of weeks ago, or a few weeks ago, and we noted that scourging was a brutal process in and of itself, and most of the time, people who were scourged were brought to near death. They called it the half-death punishment, because people literally were at the brink of death when they quit scourging them. Now, as history goes, it wasn't always common for someone to be scourged before they were crucified, Uh, Some have believed that that was always the case. That's actually a myth. History doesn't bear that out. Jesus was scourged very brutally, Pilate thinking that would suffice the multitude, but it did not. He said, I'm going to chastise him and I'm going to let him go. And so he delivered him to be scourged. And then they would not be pacified. They kept saying crucify him, crucify him. But at this point, as we noted in Isaiah 52 and verse 14, Jesus' beating was so bad that he didn't look recognizable. His visage and his form were marred, Isaiah says, more than any man in his form, more than the sons of men. Jesus was brutally beaten when he was scourged. <clears throat> so being exhausted... From this scourging, losing massive amounts of blood from the beating, they crucified him, it says. So we're going to talk about some medical and historical things about the crucifixion of Jesus. Because again, we're trying to prove that Jesus actually died. And this is not something new. John actually spent a great deal in his uh, gospel and also in the first letter that John wrote, 1 John, Uh, proving that Jesus actually did come and live in a body and that he actually did die that was part of his uh, apologetics if you will so first off when it says that they nailed Jesus what we would call this is roughly a spike and this spike even even though we typically see history saying that it was through the palms or not history, but rather uh, speculation was that it was through the palms. You see artist renderings and things like that. If you look in history and look at crucifixion, it was actually put more what we would call the wrist between the radial and the ulna right here in what is called the uh, median nerve or what we call the carpal tunnel nerve. They put it right here. Now the reason they did that is because the hands would not bear the weight. And I know this sounds somewhat gruesome, but they experimented with this at one time And it would actually rip through the palms and between the fingers when they tried to hold up a person's weight for a period of time. So they began to nail them back here. And so that's the reason that they put those uh, in that particular place in the wrist and not the palm of the hand. Uh, When they nailed his feet together, there were different ways that they did it, but it seems like the most... um, Ex- the reasonable explanation about the time period is their practice at the time was to actually put the feet on top of one another. Now, there were times when they would put their feet on the sides of the cross and put two nails and nail uh, one foot both into each side of the cross. But again, the Romans were experimenting with this and they were trying to perfect their, their uh, art of torture, if you will. And this was the one that they believed would impact them the most. It would bring about the most agony and suffering And so they did this for a reason and we'll talk about why they nailed it this way in just a moment. But the placement of the nail was back here. I know this looks like, but those those toes aren't that long. It's back in the foot between those toes. Again, where these nerves are in the foot. So very painful. These spikes would be driven through both of the feet of Jesus and nailed to the cross and this would be the place that he would bear his weight. So, How did people die in crucifixion? That's a very important question as we're considering whether or not Jesus died. How did they die? They had two methods of crucifying. They had a fast method and they had a slow method. Now, the slow method was just what we're seeing here on the screen. The fast method, they would take and they would put a block of wood right here under the feet. Now, that would allow them to live a lot longer because what actually happened in crucifixion was that as a person's arms were stretched out and they were bearing their body weight, your breathing becomes the opposite of what it is, what it is right now. Right now, when you draw in a breath, your diaphragm actually goes down and it's, you're actively inhaling and then you're passively exhaling. It's easy to exhale, but hard to inhale, okay? When they're on the cross and they're bearing all their weight, it's the total opposite. Easy to inhale, but you have to pull yourself up with your hands and with your feet, pushing on those spikes in order to let the air out of your lungs. And your lungs are expanded for a very long time. And if you don't push yourself up, you cannot exhale. You cannot breathe out. Eventually, they would tire out and they would suffocate. And so if you had this wood block under your feet, uh, the feet were a lot easier to use to push the body up. And sometimes people would last anywhere from 20 hours to a couple of days on the cross, depending upon how badly they were beaten before they were put on there. Now, considering how quickly Jesus died in his crucifixion, that gives us a couple of indications. Number one, how bad the beating was, but secondly, that they probably used this method. This was excruciating, terrible, terrible pain. We can't imagine, and you know, I use the word excruciating in here. It's somewhat ironic that we use that word because the very word excruciating in the English language, do you know where that word comes from? crucifixion excruciating it means out of the cross that's the word that they use to describe agony a word that describes the method of crucifixion this was extremely painful for jesus and and some said well people lived a long time so maybe jesus pretended that he was dead or he just passed out well that's not a possibility notice what john says in john 19 and john is the only one of the gospels that records this fact One of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. Now I want you to know something. This was not unusual. It wasn't like this guy had an idea and went, oh, I'll just stab him with a spear. This was historically common practice for the Romans to ensure that the victims, the criminals on the cross, were actually dead. And so he pierces his side with a spear and immediately blood and water comes out. Now, what what does it mean blood and water came out? This is this is also I found this very interesting. I want you to notice where this quote is from. This is from the Journal of American Medical uh, of the American Medical Association in 1986. Things have changed, okay? But back then in 1986 when this journal was written, a big journal, I mean, this is on page 1460, these doctors were discussing the actual medical uh, results of crucifixion and why the Bible described what it did. And so here's what it is. It's a little bit wordy. The water probably represented serous pleural and pericardial fluid and would have preceded the flow of blood and been smaller in volume than the blood. Perhaps in the setting of hypovolemia and impending acute heart failure, pleural and pericardial effusions may have developed and would have added to the volume of apparent water. The blood, in contrast, may have originated from the right atrium or the right ventricle or perhaps from a hemopericardium. Now, I'm going to put that in layman's terms. Here's what they're saying. Because of the agony that he was suffering and the immense blood pressure raising and the heart rate and all of the pain and shock, that's hypovolemia, that people go through during that type of torture and agony, the lungs and the heart, the sac around the heart and the lungs begin to fill up with fluid. That's what they're saying. Well that makes perfect sense. That's exactly what would happen especially if a person's suffocating for several hours and their lungs are in constant torture and agony. They also went on to say by custom one of the Roman guards would pierce the body with a sword or a lance. Traditionally this had been considered a spear wound to the heart through the right side of the chest, a fatal wound probably taught to the most to most Roman soldiers. Now, we're not doctors but we're probably thinking well why would they stab them in the right side to get to the heart? Well Again, these are doctors, and you also have to think about the fact they're not sticking a a spear parallel to the ground like this. He's up on top of the cross, and they're below, and so the easiest course so they didn't have to go through the ribs is to go through the right side and to stab through the lungs and possibly the heart. So as they stab through, what is the point of that? To ensure they're dead, and if they're not, that will kill them. There's no doubt about it a spear through the lungs or the heart, he's not going to lay inside of a tomb for a couple days after a spear is driven through his heart and his lungs. That makes absolutely no sense. Jesus did not faint on the cross. He was most certainly, without a doubt, dead. And everybody there knew he was dead. Listen to what John said. Now this is the verse that is right after where John says, a soldier pierced his side. He who has seen has testified. He's talking about himself. And his testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth so that you may believe. John is saying, I was there, Jesus was dead. Because again, he's writing to the second generation of Christians. His gospel is different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John is writing during the time where where Gnosticism became very prevalent uh, in in doctrine within the church. And what Gnosticism mainly... Focused on was that Jesus actually didn't either live in the flesh or he never was resurrected or that he had a spirit body when he was resurrected. And John, that's why he focuses so much on Son of Man, Son of God, and he talks about Jesus' flesh and he talks uh, about Jesus actually being God, being deity. He wants them to understand that Jesus really was a man, he lived as a man, and that flesh and blood died, and that Jesus actually was. Dead. You know, I think one of the problems is this is the picture of the cross that people see all the time. This has become a symbol of faith for about 2 billion people. 2 billion. It looks like he just had a shower. I mean, really. Does that sound like Isaiah 52? You yeah, know, that doesn't really look, I mean, yeah, I might believe that a guy could survive with, with, with a little, you know, poke right here and maybe some holes. Maybe. No. Look, I didn't put another picture up here to try to, do. I don't. I don't know exactly what Jesus looked like, but I'll tell you, this wasn't it. And the Romans didn't make mistakes. They didn't mistakenly take living people off the cross. They were experts at this. If Jesus hadn't have been dead, they'd have broken his legs so that he couldn't push up with his feet and he would have suffocated more quickly. But when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was dead already. And just to make sure, to triple check, they thrust a spear into his side and out of it came fluid and water. I mean, fluid and blood, I'm sorry. Jesus was dead. When they put Jesus in the tomb, he was dead. Every one of the disciples knew Jesus was dead. He was beaten to a critical condition. He had large open wounds to carpal and tarsal nerves. Large wound in his side piercing uh, either the lungs, heart or both. And massive amounts of blood loss. You take a man like that and tell me that he woke up and pushed a rock away. Look, if we actually went through just this right here, we're not walking and pushing anything. Nothing. Nothing. That's not what happened. Jesus did not faint. The swoon theory is ridiculous. It is ridiculous. Now, I told you a moment ago, why were the disciples so shocked when Mary came back to them and said, The Lord has risen, and it says they didn't believe her. Why did they not believe her? I mean, they'd seen Lazarus be raised, right? Yeah, they did, but they didn't see Lazarus die. You said, well, you're not saying they didn't believe Lazarus rose from the dead. No, I believe that they believed that. But Lazarus got sick and he fell asleep and died. They watched Jesus tortured to death. They saw blood flowing from his body. They believed he's dead. They didn't believe because they knew he was dead because he died a brutal death. And I'm thankful. Not only because Jesus paid for my sin that he died a brutal death, but I'm thankful that he died a brutal death because God, in in choosing his death, proves to us that he really died. Therefore, he really was raised. So let's talk about the impersonation and the hallucination theory. We're not going to spend much time on the hallucination theory, um, and, and I'll show you why in just a moment. But let's just... Talk about where that comes from for a moment. Luke 24, 15, this is on the road to Emmaus. It came to pass that while they communed together and reasoned, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were holding that they should not know him. So this is where people go, well, if it was really Jesus, I mean, these people spent time with Jesus, they would have recognized him. And this is just an excuse to say, well, yeah, somebody impersonated Jesus and it just took him a while to convince them it was really him because it didn't look like him. Well, if you look at another account, if you look at Mark's account, it doesn't just say their eyes were holden or restrained. That's all that means. They were restrained so that they didn't recognize him. But Mark says this, after that he appeared in another form to two of them as they walked and went into the country. Jesus chose for them not to recognize him. Now, here, here's another thing to think about. If these were the only two people that witnessed Jesus' resurrection, we might go, yeah, I'm not buying that. Those guys were just confused, and this guy obviously was a good con artist, and he convinced them it was him. But it wasn't two people. It wasn't 10 people. It wasn't 20 people. It was a lot of people that saw Jesus alive after his resurrection. Acts chapter 1, verse 3 to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs. Listen to this. Being seen by them, that's the apostles and disciples, the 120, during 40 days. They spent 40 days with Jesus. It wasn't like he showed up and said, I'm Jesus, and then disappeared. He was with them for 40 days, and it says he showed them with infallible truths for 40 days. You think those people were that dense? They had every reason within their own mind not to believe Jesus rose from the dead. They were all skeptical about it. And even after Jesus shows up in the midst of the apostles and he says, here I am, they went, no, it's not you. And he's, it's me, look, look at my hands, look at my feet. And they still didn't believe him. And he said, well, Have you got any food to eat? Give me some food. I'll show you. I'm really here. This is my body. Why'd he ask them for something to eat? Because they thought it was a ghost or a spirit. No, it's me. He convinced them. They believed. Why? He, he was still bearing the marks of his crucifixion. You know, we give Thomas a bad rap, but it was all of them. And he told Thomas the same. He said, look at my hands, look at my feet. Take your hand and thrust it into my side. Look where they pierced me with a spear. I was dead and I'm alive. It was really Jesus. First Corinthians 15, Paul writing says this about witnessing the resurrection of Jesus. For I deliver to you first all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Now, he's going to give some evidence I witnessed testimony that Jesus rose from the dead. He said he was seen by Cephas, that's Peter, and then by the 12. So first Peter saw him, then all the apostles. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once. So you're telling me over 500 people hallucinated. That's ridiculous. 500 people, including Peter, who was with him every single day for over three years, They bought the story of a con man. No. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained of the present, but some have fallen asleep. You know what he's saying? He's saying some of those 500 have died, but some hadn't. So if you want to, go ask them. Go talk to them. The resurrection's real. This is the same chapter where he's trying to prove to them that the resurrection happened. He's saying people witnessed the resurrection. They saw Jesus resurrected. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also as by one born out of due time. Now, there's some argument about whether or not this is James the less, uh, which was a cousin of Jesus, or this is James his actual physical brother. I'm not, we're not gonna get into that tonight. I just want you to notice people who knew Jesus saw Jesus and they were with him for 40 days and they knew it was him and believed it was him. Maybe a couple people getting duped by some impersonator is believable, but several hundred people who knew Jesus? No. Matthew 28, verse 11. Now, while they were going, now we're back in Matthew 28, we're toward the end of the chapter here. While they were going, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all the things that had happened. I told you, remember that about the guards seeing the angel and being fearful for death. Because now they come and they tell the chief priests what had just happened. What would they have told them? What they saw. What did they see? Think about this. These guys come to the chief priests and they come in and they say, Okay. We were at the tomb, because that's where they're supposed to be. Why? Because that was their job. And what happens if they don't do their job? Bad things happen. So they're coming to tell the story, and here's what they tell them. We were there at the tomb, and all of a sudden an earthquake happened, and we turned around, and the tomb was open, and an angel was there. And he was so bright, and he was just white, and we were just like dead men. That's the story these chief priests would have heard. And how hard-hearted do you have to be after hearing that story to, to, to say this? When they'd assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers saying, tell them the disciples came at night and stole them away while they slept. They knew that wasn't true. They know this story's not true. In fact, that's the story they were trying to prevent. But now it's all they got. It's all they got. Now, if you're a soldier and you're under Roman government and these guys tell you to do that, what are you going to think? They were greedy. They were greedy. But also, the chief priest had the ear of the praetor. And so they said, if it comes to the governor's seat, we will appease him and make you secure. You just go on and you tell them this happened. Even though these soldiers know that didn't happen. Now, is this a plausible theory that the disciples came and stole away the body of Jesus, and that explains the empty tomb? Is that a plausible theory? Well, let's just look. Luke eighteen thirty-two 32 and uh, 35, For he shall be delivered unto the Gentiles, and shall be mocked. This is Jesus talking to his apostles. For he shall be delivered unto the Gentiles, and shall be mocked, and spitefully entreated, and spit it on. And they shall scourge him, and put him to death, and the third day he shall rise again. That's pretty cut and dry, isn't it? Did anybody have trouble with what we just read, understanding what Jesus was predicting? They did. And they understood none of these things. And this saying was hid from them, neither knew they these things which were spoken. Why would the apostles try and steal the body of Jesus when they didn't know that the plan was for Jesus to rise from the dead? There's a reason they were sitting over in this house crying and weeping. Is because they thought the Lord was dead and he's not coming back they didn't get it they had no motive for taking the body they didn't understand the resurrection why would they take the body look at John 20 and 5 now this is after Jesus has risen keep in mind so Peter and John are running to the tomb and he stooping down and looking in saw the linen clothes lying there yet he did not go in That's John. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb and he saw the linen clothes lying there and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in, that's John who's writing, went in also and he saw and believed. Now look at verse 9. For as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Again, they had no motive For taking the body. Because until they walked in the tomb and saw that it was empty, they didn't even know that he was going to rise from the dead. They didn't get it. Not only did they not have any motive. Well, I'm going to get ahead of myself. We'll come back to that. Let's look at the last theory for a moment. We're not going to spend hardly any time on this. Because I will tell you... This is one of the top four theories. There's a bunch of theories out there, but there's four that are most prevalent. And this one is ridiculous, that the enemies of Christ stole the body. So let's just think about this logically. I don't even want to appeal to Scripture for this. Let's just think about it logically, knowing what we know about Scripture. They set the watch to secure the tomb. The enemies were the ones that didn't want the body leaving the tomb. Why would they take the body? There's no incentive for them to take the body. They paid the soldiers to lie after the body disappeared. Why would they not just tell the soldiers, hey, look, don't worry about it. We've got the body. And the last thing I want you to consider is Pentecost Day. 3,000 Jews are converted to Christianity because they believe the tomb is empty. If the enemies of Christ wanted to stop Christianity in its tracks, all they had to do was bring the body out. But they couldn't. You know why? Because they didn't have it. Because it wasn't there. And it wasn't on earth. The tomb was empty. The Romans knew it. The disciples knew it. The chief priests knew it. And they tried to come up with some stories, but none of those stories fit. And this one, is, is it just doesn't make any sense. Why would they take the body? And if they had the body, why did they not stop what they were trying to stop by producing the body? Because they didn't have it. There's one logical explanation. And that's that Jesus rose from the dead. It's a fact that the tomb was empty. And there's only one logical explanation. Jesus is alive. His body, literal body, came out of the tomb. And I don't believe the angel rolled back the stone so Jesus could get out. He rolled back the stone so people could see he wasn't there. He was risen. So as we finish our chapter tonight, I want to consider something about the apostles. And I believe that the apostles and the work of the apostles that they did is the greatest evidence that Jesus rose from the dead. I want to use the Great Commission to to try to assert that. Jesus told them, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. Amen. When they took Jesus and they took him captive, what happened to the disciples? Where would they go? They ran like cowards. I'm sorry. That's what they did. We probably would have done the same. But they ran like cowards. They feared for their life. When Peter was asked, were you with Jesus, what did Peter say? No, I was not. I was not with Jesus. He denied him three times. Why? Because Peter was afraid. What changed? All these men went out after the resurrection and they died for what they knew to be true. They lost that fear of death when they saw Jesus alive. It radically changed them. They didn't believe Jesus rose. They knew he arose and they all died for it. You know what would be insane? If you came up with the story that Jesus rose from the dead, you made up the story and when they're going to put you to death, you knowingly die for what you know to be a lie. It's one thing for people to die for what they believe. It's another thing for somebody to die for something they know not to be true. They knew it was true. They touched him. They sat with him. They ate with him. After he arose from the dead. Jesus' brother was a skeptic. But after the resurrection, he was a pillar in the church. Their radical change because of their eyewitness, them eyewitnessing Jesus' resurrection. The Apostle Paul, the greatest evidence in a person's life that he actually saw Jesus, was one of Jesus' greatest opposers and greatest enemy and became one of, if not his most loyal servant. Why? Because he saw the resurrected Jesus and knew he who was alive. Friends, we can have confidence in the resurrection of Jesus. And because we have confidence in the resurrection of Jesus, we know that our faith and our hope and our trust and our salvation are real.